It's also today the High Holy Day in the American religious calendar, which is, of course, Super Bowl Sunday. And there are four things going on. And, and yes, it's about the, the game. Uh, 7% of the people in America kind of care about the Patriots or the Rams. Uh, there's a lot more going on, though. It's really about how many people can't stand Maroon 5. It's about 80, 84%. Um, it's about those who feel they've gotten robbed by a no-call. The entire state of Louisiana is 1.4% of the population. That compels the entire state of Louisiana to root for the Darth Vader of the NFL, which is, of course, Bill Belichick and the Patriots. It is about how much the world really does hate the Patriots for a lot of reasons. Uh, some people think it's because, you know, you hate us because you ain't us, and we win all the time, and I'm sure that's a part of it. But, you know, Spygate, Deflategate, just smug. You're just smug. You're smug. So as a result, here's the map. Uh, this is all science. 99.992% of the world's population is rooting for the Rams as a result. Uh, even Patriots fans, they really do hate themselves. I mean, we just know that. We know that. So the whole sports world is about dichotomy. It's about, it's about this team and that team and the, and the opposition. Dichotomy is defined as a division or contrast between two things that are opposed. That's athletics. You know, Rancho Christian, Sierra Canyon, Rams, Patriots, opposed. We're about to study 1 John. We're going to take five weeks to study 1 John, about one chapter at a time, Masa Menos. And as we go through it, we're going to see these dichotomies all through the book of 1 John. We're going to see words that are contrasting to really identify what kind of life we want to live. You'll see words like darkness and light, lie and truth, sin and righteousness, hate and love, deny and believe, death and life. And so, of course, this series is about an invitation to live. It's about permission to live. And permission to live is about a life in Christ, a life that advances the cause of Christ, as we say around here. So first, right out of the gate, we see in the book of 1 John, we see permission to live being permission to be united to God in Jesus Christ. This is really the good news. This is the core message, that we are united with God the Father through Jesus Christ. So here's how the book of 1 John gets started. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is the introduction to Jesus. Uh, John is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's one of the 12 disciples, right? And he was a very close disciple, and he wrote several books of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He wrote three letters at the end of the New Testament, which is one of the letters we're studying this month, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. So uh, John's kind of a big deal, and, and to him, the biggest deal is who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And if we understand that, we will be given permission to really live. And it begins with an introduction of Jesus, and he says, in the beginning... Now, does that kind of sound familiar in the beginning? Genesis 1-1, the whole Bible starts, in the beginning. Twelve times in the Bible, that phrase is used, in the beginning, including in the Gospel of John and at the first part of 1 John. Whenever that phrase is used, it's always talking about the, the, the state of being before there was a cosmos, before the heavens and earth were created, right? The state of being. And, and what was before the cosmos? Only God. And so Jesus was in the beginning, meaning Jesus, as John says, was with God and was God. So John is introducing Jesus as the fullness of divinity. But, but divinity, the, the, the divine God, for a lot of people is just kind of vague and it's, and it's spiritual and it's mystical. 
And so what John does is says that divinity took on flesh. The divinity became a human. So he talks about seeing Jesus, walking with Jesus, even touching him, hearing from Jesus. So he's very specific that Jesus actually walked among us. We walked with him. We talked with him. We heard him preach these incredible sermons like the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. And, we, and we, we've seen him do things that only the divine can do. Heal the sick, calm the storm, raise the dead. I mean, this is Jesus, fullness of divinity in the fullness of humanity. Then he goes on to say the life appeared, that life appeared, and we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, this might not ring in your ears very naturally, that Jesus is the eternal life. That's who he is. Sometimes we might think of eternal life as, as living for an eternal number of days after we die. That's, that's a lot of what we have become you know, accustomed to when we talk about eternal life. But biblical eternal life is much deeper than that. Biblical eternal life is understanding and being in a relationship with Jesus. Jesus Christ is eternal life. Jesus Christ is eternal life. Eternal life is not a transaction. It's not a transaction between God and us that we attain. So I brought up with me a, a gift. It's a, a wonderfully wrapped gift, which means I didn't wrap it. My wife did. Very nice of her to do that. So it's a wonderfully wrapped gift. Now, for a lot of us, we think God offers us eternal life. When we die, we'll live an eternal number of days after that. And so God did his part. He's faithful. But we may or may not do our part in this transaction. And so the Christian pitch is that God is giving us eternal life. He did his part. Now, we have to do our part, which means I have to admit that I have sinned. I have to feel guilty for my sin. I have to confess that sin. I have to ask for forgiveness of that sin. I have to believe kind of a long list of Christian doctrines that are right, the essential doctrines of the faith. I have to place my faith, my trust in Jesus, and I have to be sincere about that and commit to be a good moral and religious person. It's a long list. And then I receive eternal life. God does his part. I have to do my part. Eternal life is now a transaction, and I get it until I fail. And then if I fail again, if I sin again, I'm separated from God and have to go through a whole transaction all over again. That's transactional faith. And that's kind of the common understanding that God gives us some, some good things out there, including living forever and maybe answering our prayers or blessing our life, whatever it is. But in order to get that, we have to do our part, our side of the transaction. The book of 1 John, the ministry of Jesus, and certainly the continued ministry of the church ought to be to free people from that transactional relationship with God. That is no relationship at all. In fact, that is what the Bible calls death. That idea that God is against us and we have to do our part to earn anything from him. And that cycle of failure and forgiveness and failure and forgiveness is something that most people deal with to some degree or another, and it's such a slavery. Listen to what John describes as eternal life. 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is eternal life, and this is the call to live in Christ. Now, there's a religious word here, fellowship. We don't use that word fellowship anywhere outside of church. If you ask your coworker, hey, you want a fellowship over lunch? I mean, you'd be weird. Don't do that. It's a biblical word that simply means unity. Unity. In fact, the Greek word in the original language is koinonia. And it means complete participation, unqualified union, a total union. So here's the invitation to live in eternal life, that we together 
live in complete participation and unqualified union with the eternal life, Jesus Christ, as a gift of grace. The whole cause of Christ, the whole mission of Christ, our invitation here today is to live in Christ, to live in the eternal life of knowing him, knowing his love, knowing we're forgiven. That's permission to live, to receive Christ. Now, John, who wrote this letter, was an apostle of Christ. In fact, it could be argued that he was the favored apostle. Do you know know why that could be argued? Because that's what he said in his own letters. Might have caused some jealousy. But in his own letters, in the gospel, he called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. And, um, And so I guess he considered himself kind of a big deal. But it's pretty well inarguable that John and Jesus were best friends. He had 12 disciples, but John and Jesus were particularly close. There's a very good argument that John and Jesus were actually cousins, so they could have very well have grown up together. And, and so they were very close, good, good friends, probably best friends. They might have even grown up together as cousins. Um, he was called the disciple who Jesus loved, yes, by himself. John was also the only one there at the cross when Jesus died. Every other disciple ran away screaming in fear at his arrest. John was there. He's the only one there at the foot of, cross, at the, foot of the cross. And then when Jesus was, was breathing his last breaths, he looked to Mary, his mother, and says, Mary, this is John. He's now your son. He looks to John and says, John, this is Mary, your mother. He entrusted John to the care of Mary and Mary into the care of John. They were close. And so John understands the, the pleasure of living a life in unity with Jesus Christ, the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity. He understands the real life that comes by a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, John understood he didn't deserve that, but the love of God is most expressed when he gives us what we don't deserve, right? It's almost like uh, adoption. For those of you who have adopted, you, you chose a child to give your entire life to, your family's love, your family's blessings, your family home, even your family inheritance you give to this child that has no right to be in your home. There's a beautiful family that just came back from uh, Ghana. Uh, This is James and and Kylie. They actually spent about two years in Ghana looking to adopt this beautiful daughter. And and there's there's no right that that daughter has to their love. There's no right that she has to their home. Yet they've chosen to give her everything. It's a gift. It's a freely given gift. It's not a transaction where they do their part and the daughter does their part. I mean, do you think every day they were saying, okay, uh, honey, you got to do your part. You know, you got to do more push-ups. I don't know. What, what can we possibly do to earn God's love? The answer is nothing. God chooses us, adopts us, and welcomes us into a relationship with his family through Jesus Christ. That is love. And by the way, those two are the ones that are running the new Imani coffee, uh, both this campus and the next campus. And it is good African coffee. You got to check it out. It's a whole relaunch today, so we're excited about that. John says this about experiencing the love of Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And he's using the, the, the hour. He's using the collective communal hour. There is a communal joy when we together understand that we are one with Jesus. And because we're in relationship with Jesus, purely by love and purely by grace, that means we're in relationship with God the Father and we're in relationship with each other. That is eternal life. Unity of relationship with Jesus, with the Father, with each other. And that, yes, does last, I believe, throughout eternity. But eternal life is enjoying that oneness with God and with one another. Now, John makes it very clear that not everybody enjoys that. Not everybody enjoys that. Not everybody understands 
God's grace and God's goodness. So he talks about some people um, in a way that warns them. Here's what he says in 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship, koinonia, union with Jesus, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's a pretty stern warning. It's pretty harsh language. Keep in mind the dichotomy, lie and truth, right? He's, he's, he's putting out two stark choices. Now, when I was in, in youth group, I, I, did, I did like Bible study. I was kind of one of those, you know, uh, youth group nerds and, and loved Bible study, right? And, and I would study this verse a lot, and I would study 1 John actually quite a bit. And this passage really weighed heavily on me. Now, why do you think that is? Because I always thought, am I possibly the one walking in darkness? I mean, this is a pretty ominous deal here. If we claim we have fellowship or union with Jesus, but we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth, that's a heavy warning. So in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, you know what, am I the hypocrite who is, is claiming to follow Christ, but then I know my own failures, I know what's in my head, and it ain't always good stuff in here. And I know what my habits are, and it's not always good stuff there. So I was constantly thinking as a young person, Am I claiming to follow Christ, but my life isn't measuring up? Am I the hypocrite? Am I the one walking in darkness? And this is a heavy warning. And, and so in, in, my, in my, my thinking, I'm thinking, okay, well, I have to do better. If I, if I had a little less nonsense going on here, and if I had a little less nonsense going on in the habits of my life, then maybe I wouldn't feel like I'm walking in darkness, and maybe I would walk in the light, and then I would really you know, kind of grab on tightly to all the gifts and goodness and eternal life that God gave me. But here's the reality. This is not talking to us. 1 John 1, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Those five verses are not talking to us. Now, I get in a lot of trouble when I say this. This is the, the second time I've taught on 1 John. The first time was almost a decade ago, and I got in so much trouble then, and I may get in so much trouble now, for those of you who haven't been here for a while. 1 John 1, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are not talking about us. They're talking about the pre-Gnostics, there was a heresy that took root in the second and third century called Gnosticism. And it started kind of bubbling up when this letter was being written. And here's what Gnostics think. And by the way, if this is you, then this warning is for you, but I'm pretty sure it's not. Gnostics believe the body is evil. The body is evil. And because the body is evil, Jesus must not have had a body. So they believe that Jesus was kind of like a ghost phantom. Anybody here on that? Okay. They believe that the goal was to escape from the body, that, that, that they needed to be in, in an enlightened state. So through mysticism, mystical experiences, and mystical knowledge, they can elevate out of their bodies into a place of, it was a form of enlightenment, um, a form of enlightenment, uh, and then they, their spirit would be perfect even though their body was evil. And so because they understood their bodies as evil, they did things that, with their bodies without moral restraint. And so they were living with their bodies immorally yet they believed that their spirits were absolutely perfect and sinless. That's the pre-Gnostic mentality. Anybody here pre-Gnostic? Nobody's pre-Gnostic, right? Um, it, it's a heresy that kind of popped up and then died in the third century. So 1 John 1, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are talking about the, the pre-Gnostics. Now, I don't want to pretend that it doesn't apply to us at all. There certainly are a lot of people uh, on earth who do not believe they need a forgiver. And that's really kind of the bigger picture. The pre-Gnostics did not believe they needed to be forgiven. They kind of worked themselves by spirit out of this slavery of the body into a state of perfection. That's what they, that they perceived that they did. So those who do not believe 
that they have failed and need forgiveness, those are the people who cannot understand the forgiveness of Christ. Makes sense, right? If you don't believe you need to be forgiven, how can you possibly experience the forgiveness of Christ? So according to John, that's what it is to walk in darkness. For people who think they are perfect, they don't believe they need forgiveness, they certainly don't need Jesus Christ, so they're walking in darkness. 1 John 1.8. These are the people he's talking to. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's real simple. This warning about walking in darkness is for those who claim to be without sin. They have no failures in their life. Then 1 John 1.9 clicks in. Now, 1 John 1.9 is a verse you might be familiar with. Uh, I guarantee you, virtually every man and woman, young man and woman in youth group in the 80s and 90s memorized 1 John 1.9. Here it is. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Does that ring a bell? It's a very common verse. I thought, again, with a misunderstanding of 1 John, my thought that this was my way of getting re-forgiven every time I sin. So let's go back to this transactional thought. I have God's goodness, I have God's grace, I have God's eternal life as long as I behave. I was taught many, many, many years that sin separates me from God. So if I, if I failed, if I did something I know I shouldn't do or didn't do something I know I should do, I would believe, because I was taught, I'd be separate from God. Sin separates me from God. And, and, and that God really cares about whether I'm moral or good or right. And so if, I'm, if I do something that's wrong, he's mad at me and disappointed with me and he turns his back on me. And, and now everything that he has done for me, I disqualified myself from because of my failure. So I took 1 John 1, 9 as the way back. I'm not forgiven unless I confess my sin. And so I was, again, taught. And it made perfect sense. I disqualified myself from God because I failed. My sin separates me from God. God's mad at me. And so what do I have to do? I have to be sincere. I have to confess my sin. God, here's where I sinned. I have to ask for forgiveness. God, would you forgive me? I have to repent of my sin. That's a big religious word. That means I have to commit to not do that again. And then I have to be sincere. I can't doubt. I have to be sincere. And then I have to believe again and be faithful again. And then I'll be back in God's good graces. And so what it is, it's a religious cycle of forgiveness and failure. Forgiveness and failure. And I lived that for about a decade. And early in ministry, I taught that cycle of forgiveness and failure. And I'm telling you, most people live in that endless cycle. Most Christians live in that endless cycle. Believing that if they fail, they're separate from God, they have to be guilty, confess, ask for forgiveness, be sincere, repent of that sin in order to get back to God. Now, here's what happens. Super religious people do that very well, and, and they find themselves getting very cozy with earning the right to be near to God, and so they walk around like they own the place, and then they start judging other people, right? That's kind of the normal Christian religious deal. God wants us free from that whole thing. Here's what it says in verse 10. Just proving the point that 1 John 1, 9 is not for us, it's for the Gnostics. Again, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. 1 John 1, 8, if you think you have no sin, you don't walk in the truth. 1 John 1, 9, confess that you have sin. 1 John 1, 10, if you claim you don't have sin, you make him out to be a liar. So what's the whole point? If anybody wants to walk with Jesus, if anybody wants to experience his forgiving grace, they have to first admit that they have sin that needs to be forgiven. They've made mistakes. There are failures in their lives. That's all it is. This is not 
a, a roadmap for us to be re-forgiven. We are forgiven once and for all. Did you get that? We're forgiven once and for all. Here's the transaction that we want to be free from. Transaction number one, I sin against God. Therefore, God is offended and angry. Therefore, my sin separates me from God. That's kind of the normal religious understanding. This is not true. Now, it could be true that, let's go back one deal. It could be true that you've sinned. No problem with that, right? Well, it's a little bit of a problem. But that sin's forgiven. You don't have to go through this cycle of believing God's offended and angry with you and believing your sin separates you from God. It does not. It does not. But this is what we believe. And so we have to go through another transaction of getting back into God's good graces. Therefore, I need to feel guilty for my sin. I need to confess my sin. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to repent of that sin, commit not to do it again, and then God forgives me. It's a cycle of forgiveness and failure, forgiveness and failure, and we want to be done with it. We want to be done with it. We do not need to confess every sin to be forgiven. We do not need to ask for forgiveness for every sin to be forgiven. We don't have to repent of every sin to be forgiven. We are forgiven because God decided to forgive us once and for all, and he proved that by giving his son to die on a cross, to be swallowed up by the sin of the world. The sin of the world smothered Jesus on a cross and swallowed him up in death, and he rose again from the dead to prove that the sin and failure of the world does not have the victory. And so sin is over, sin is done with, sin is forgiven. But the religious mind thinks God is so obsessed with how we behave. That's his primary priority, is how we behave. He wants us behaving right, and it's almost like he's this stern judge up there. You better not misbehave. I have this, this, this gift of eternal life, but in order to get it, you better behave. You better believe the right things. You better do the right things. You better be religious. You better be devout. And here are billions of people all over the planet struggling and struggling to appease God because he really cares about our behavior. Jesus made it crystal clear. God is not primarily interested in our behavior. He's primarily interested in us knowing how loved we are. And that's what ends up changing everything. I've used this example, forgive me if, if I've used it a little too much, but it's so crystal clear. I've got an 11-year-old daughter. She had her birthday party yesterday, about a dozen friends come over, you know, 10 and 11-year-olds, and, and uh, they came over for, to do some, you know, games and fun and whatever, and we heated up the jacuzzi, which was cool, but then they all decided to go in a polar dip, 50-degree pool in the rain. It was fun, screeching. If you hear 10 to 12-year-olds screeching last night, came from our house, right? Had a great time. But let's just say um, Aubrey didn't clean her room before the party. That wouldn't be entirely unusual. She's not the neatest person on earth, Right? And let's just say, oh, that might not have been the first time she didn't clean her room like she was supposed to. So she has failed her mother and father again and again and again. And so let's say after the party, you know, she wants to come in from the rain uh, after, you know, with her bathing suit and, and she's freezing cold. And uh, no, you, you can't come in, Aubrey. You didn't clean your room. Your sin has separated you from us. But mom and dad, I'm shivering and I'm cold. Nope, your sin has separated. In fact, you have sinned so much, you might not even be a treadway anymore. But I'm sorry, tears, I'm so sorry, I feel terrible. And so we crack open the door a little bit. Are you really sorry? Are you sincere that you're sorry? Uh, mother and father, I, I confess to you that I did not clean my room. Okay, well, that's a start. I ask for your forgiveness. I beseech thee, mother and father, will you please forgive me? I make a commitment, I'll repent of that sin and I will not do it again. And I'm super sincere, would you let me in? Okay, you've earned the right now to come in by your transactional behavior. Now you may eat in our household and sleep in the bed unless you don't clean your room again. You'd call CPS, we'd be arrested. <laughs> Yet that's how we believe. 
God is towards us. He cares about how we behave. As long as we behave, you're good. Soon as we misbehave, he's mad, turns his back, and you gotta earn the way back. Most people live like that to some degree or another. This message, the message of Christ, the message of 1 John is to invite us to be free from that and just to enjoy being loved. Here's the reality. My daughter will likely not clean her room appropriately today. That's very likely. I've already forgiven her of that. I've already forgiven her of that. I have forgiven her an eternal number of times that she will not clean her room. She lives in a state of forgiveness. She's my daughter. I have already forgiven her of everything she ever will do against her mother and I. Hopefully it just doesn't get too gnarly. I don't want that tested. But she is in a state of forgiveness is who she is. I don't have to go through this forgiveness transaction with my daughter, that's silly. Oh, you're in a state of unforgiveness? No, I love you, therefore I've forgiven you. Believe me, my wife has put me in a state of forgiveness every time I don't clean my room to her standards, right? That's just life, it's just family. It's the pleasure of relationship is we just choose to live in a state of constant and perpetual forgiveness that can never be removed. I'm gonna put it in some ways so we get it, right? We are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, received by faith alone, not by works. Let's get over this transactional stuff. And in fact, the largest religious institution on earth has as a sacrament, you must confess every sin in order to be saved. That's a sacrament built into the largest institution on earth. You must confess every sin. And so I've talked to people and they're like, what if I don't remember every sin I've committed? Well, I don't know, you may not be forgiven. What if I die before I can confess the last sin I committed? I don't know, you may be damned to hell. Really, that's who God is. That is not who Jesus revealed God as. Jesus revealed God as a God of grace. Saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, received by faith alone, not by works. To put it this way, forgiveness is simply received once for all the moment we recognize, realize that Jesus Christ is the Savior, is the forgiver, then we know how loved we are and we know we are forgiven of everything, past, present, and future. We live in a state of forgiveness. It's simply received once for all, never having to ask again to receive it. Let me put it another way. We are free from the endless transactions of failure and forgiveness. We're simply forgiven, always. It's the privilege of belonging to God in Christ. This is a core message of Rancho. We get kind of in trouble for it on a fairly regular basis. And the accusation is always the same. Are you saying we're already forgiven of everything we've, we will ever do against God? Yes, you're in a state of forgiveness. It's part of the privilege of being in the family of faith. It's just like you treat your daughter or your son. It's not that big a deal. Don't, you know. But boy, our, our religious mind cannot get over the fact that God is angry, angry when we are immoral or fail. It's like mad, really mad at us. And then we gotta earn our way back. If we can live free of that, I'm telling you, that is true life because listen, no one can abuse a child to goodness. Did you get that? No one can abuse a child to goodness. The only way to guide a child to goodness is through love. Yet in church after church, millions of religious houses all over the earth, every single week there's a spiritual abuse taking place Projecting God as this angry, wrathful, vengeful being who is so concerned with our behavior. And if we misbehave, he's going to strike. 
And if you want him to bless you, you have to fall in line with the religious expectations of your behavior. That's what God is really interested in. It's spiritual abuse that takes place. And then we wonder why people are still kind of, you know, not living lives that seem to reflect the life of Jesus. It's because we're trying to spiritually abuse people to goodness. When in reality, Jesus came to smother us in love and love transforms our lives. Love transforms our lives. But every time this message of love and grace, you know, goes out, it's always the same accusation every time. Well, does that mean that people could do whatever they want to and kind of get away with it? And, and the religious mind just can't even get their heads around somebody getting away with some sin somewhere. I mean, it's like, ah, it can't happen. But can people just go crazy sinning, go crazy because there's so much grace? And, and this is answered in the Bible, kinda. Romans 5, 20. The law, God gave the commandments to increase the level of sin on the earth. I, I don't have any time to, to get into this, but that's... A reality. God says, listen, here's my standard. You're blowing it, and, and that's just a reality. It's not, it's not to pour out wrath. It's just to say, I'm giving you the law so that you know how far you are from me by nature. But where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So no matter the level of sin in the world, no matter the level of failure in somebody's life, God's grace is always more, always more. And People go crazy at this much grace. Well, no way can there be that much grace coming from God. And so here's the accusation. What are we to say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? I'm just gonna go nuts. If, there's so, if, if I can't out-sin God's grace, I'm going crazy out there. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's almost like my daughter would wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I am so you know, forgiven and loved by my parents. Uh, I'm gonna burn the house down. Does that make sense? I, I'm so loved by my parents, I'm gonna burn the house down just to prove how loved. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but that's a religious mind. The religious mind is driven by fear. What if somebody somewhere gets away with some immoral act? It's, it's unthinkable. Let's get, let's get over that paradigm and understand God is about pouring love and grace upon the earth, covering us with love and grace. If God's love is so complete that he sent his perfect son to endure the sin and suffering of this dark world and replace that sin and suffering with love, wouldn't we want to then live a life of love? That's the most important thing. It's love that motivates us to love. And God is much more interested in our love for one another than he is with us having these nice, tidy, you know, buttoned up, religiously moral lives. He wants us to love. And we'll talk about that next week. 1 John 2.1 Little children, am I, writing these, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. Let's not, let's not fail. Let's not hurt other people. We don't want to do that. But if anyone does sin, and that's all of us at some point or another, we all fail, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is the righteous. There's this understanding that we're on a journey of love towards a life that honors God. We don't want to sin. We don't want to fail. We don't want to hurt people. But if we do, there's an advocate. We are constantly covered by the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Last verse, 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is the propitiation, big religious word. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's that word propitiation mean? The word propitiation means an atoning covering. So we know who we are, right? We know our failures. In fact, if I'd ask you right now to list where you feel most guilty, where do you feel most guilty? You'll have an answer. Every single one of you will have an answer. I have an answer. Where are you most guilty? 
Where's your thought life just sideways? Where are your habits in secret shameful? What are the, the things in your life that you've done to hurt people that you should have loved instead? Where are the things in your life that you feel condemned by God, by others, by your family? Where do you feel that guilt? And for a lot of us, we, we, we don't think we deserve anything good from God, and so try harder, try harder, try harder. Maybe one day that guilt will be lifted. Guilt is only lifted by forgiveness. Guilt is only lifted by forgiveness, and God wants every one of us to know today that we are forgiven. We're forgiven because Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning covering, and that's why I brought this blanket. I'm a big fan of comfort these days. As I get older, I, get, I want more comfort. So I, I get home, clothes off, sweats on, hoodie on, slippers on, and just get me comfortable, right? Um, and my family got me this blanket for Christmas. It is an eight foot by eight foot cozy blanket. Anybody who invented a six-foot blanket ought to be taken out and beaten streets. Eight foot, it covers, it covers. This is propitiation. It is a covering, a total thorough covering. I mean, over the head, everything. I mean, it's like all of it, propitiation, right? A total covering. Now, I know in here there's a failed person. I'm not yet perfect. I want to follow Jesus more. I want to love more like Jesus for sure. But this person is not perfect. Yet Jesus is the propitiation. He is the atoning covering. He has covered it all, all. It is not as though I fail God and then I'm uncovered and I have to go this transaction. I gotta confess, I gotta ask for forgiveness, I gotta repent, I gotta be sincere. No, I am covered once for all. This is who I am. Ephesians 1 makes it very clear. In God's eyes, I am a dearly loved, holy and blameless son of God. That's who I am. And the next time I fail doesn't change that. The next time I fail doesn't separate me from every good thing that God has covered me in. Forgiveness, eternal life, unconditional love, everything. He is not angry and offended if I fail. He's a heavenly father. He doesn't want me to fail. He doesn't want me to hurt anybody. Right? But if I do, there's an advocate, Jesus Christ, who has covered me. I am never uncovered no matter what I do. I'm covered by the forgiving love and perfect righteousness of Jesus. He's the righteous one I am not. He covers me. And because he covers me, he takes me into relationship with the Heavenly Father. Because he covers us all, we are in relationship with each other as we're in relationship with God. And that's where life truly comes from. If we can't be free of this transactional cycle of failure and forgiveness, we will never really live. So this permission to live starts right now with a simple prayer of embracing the unconditional and total irrevocable forgiveness of God upon our lives of everything we've ever done and everything we ever will do is simply who we are. Let's receive that by faith. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your love for us. We want to talk about it and sing of it and pray towards this every time we meet because this is the foundation of everything in life. This is how we really live. We really live when we understand how really loved we are. And so we embrace right now your unconditional love for us. You have covered us in the righteousness of Jesus. As this world's sin and suffering and failure swallowed up Jesus in death, he rose again from the dead in victory, and we follow him. He's the one who forgives. 
He's the one who is the covering, as 1 John 2, 2 says, the covering for, for us and not just those who believe, but for the whole world. And as we try to wrap our heads around what that, what that means, we just want to take a lot of peace in knowing that we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. He forgave us and gave us eternal life, a relationship with him that is unbroken and unbreakable. He ushers us into a relationship with you, our heavenly father. And we're in relationship with each other as a family of faith, all understanding what it means to be loved and committing then to be transformed by that love and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to make this world shine a little brighter, to make this world a little more like heaven. And so God, it all begins with belief in your son Jesus and an acceptance of his forgiving grace. Help us to be free from this transactional relationship, this cycle of failure and forgiveness as though we have to do our part. We don't. Jesus did it all for us. We simply receive this gift now and forever. In his name we pray and everybody said, amen.